Hi there folks, welcome back to our studies in the book of Luke as we build up towards Easter. Uh, we are working our way through all these kind of closer chapters and uh, there's a lot to it but I hope that you find them helpful and find them beneficial. We're in Luke 21 this morning and so I, I hope uh, that you've got your Bibles with you, you can read along with us. Um, but let's just pray and then we'll get into the study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, to study your word, to look closely at in detail the, the things that you were doing and, and saying in the days leading up to your death. Lord, we uh, just uh, put so much value on uh, closing thoughts and, and uh, final thoughts. So Lord, the, this time that you've spent before the cross, Lord, is precious to us. Lord, we see just the amount of time spent in Scripture telling us all the details that you went, uh, you, uh, the details of, of what you did and what you said. So, Lord, we just we pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, Lord, give us soft hearts to receive from your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your son, Lord. We thank you for the life that he lived and for the example that he said, yes, all those are great, but Lord, we thank you for the death that he died. And, and for the resurrection, Lord, that he not only experienced for himself, but Lord, that now that we can experience through him for ourselves. And so, Lord, for this Easter season, Lord, for all the hope that it gives, Lord, we thank you for it. Amen. Okay, so let's go into this, folks, because as we come into Luke 21, Jesus has about 48 hours now left to live uh, before his crucifixion on Good Friday. It's strange to kind of frame it like that. Uh, I don't know what would you be doing if you knew you had 48 hours left to live. Jesus knows that his hour has come. He knows it and he is focused. But what he's also doing is he's making sure that the people around him are also ready and focused. Um, he's concerned for them. He, he's been building to this moment for a long time, but he knows that the people around him are also going to struggle and going to suffer because of what he's going to go through. And I just love the fact that he takes the time to take the time out for them. Now, as we get into Luke 21, he's speaking in the temple courts. There'll be a sizable crowd. It's Passover time. There's tourism. There's people coming in. So there's a higher than usual number coming out of the daily sacrifice. And what usually happens is that people linger about in the court. It's a time of private reflection of worship, we might call our quiet time. Now, in the court of a woman, there's a series of 13 offering boxes. Now, they're fancier than that, but that's effectively what they are. They're uh, love boxes. Uh, each one was dedicated to various causes, orphans or, or widows and, and the usual kind of thing like that. So as we read the first couple of verses, Jesus asks the people to have a look around it and pay attention to one of the boxes in particular. Let's read from verse 1. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. Okay, the Greek translates these two coins as two lepta, the smallest Jewish coins. We know them as mites, the two mites. Now that's about 1 64th of a denarius a day's wage for a labour. So imagine someone today getting about £8 something as a minimum wage. They work in the R day, so they walk, around, walk away with about £64. This woman puts in a 64th, so roughly puts in £1 in terms of our money today, maybe a wee bit more. A 64th of a daily wage of a labour. Now, that's literally the smallest amount that you're allowed to put into these boxes. Jewish law said that you can't put any less in. This woman puts in two mites, 
we might say, well, look, she puts in some pocket change. But when Jesus sees this woman doing what we might think is the minimum, certainly compared to how much other people were given, he says this in verse 3. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. So that's an incredible statement by Jesus. She's given more. Well, no, it's not more. She's given the minimum amount. But what Jesus says reveals a different perspective, God's perspective on giving. The rich give out of their surplus, but the widow give out of her livelihood. The Greek word is bios, life. It's where we get the word biology from. She gave literally translated of her life itself. Jesus could perceive that those rich givers wouldn't be impacted by the quantity that they gave. They'd still be comfortable. They'd still be rich. But this widow would be impacted by her giving. She would feel it. What she would have to live on would be impacted by what she put in. Right, here's the principle. Don't miss this, okay? It's pretty obvious. When God measures gifts given, he doesn't measure it according to portion, but according to proportion. Proportionally, she gave way more. She gave of herself. You see, there's, there's people out there and they could give a million pounds. And that would be amazing. Uh, any church would be truly blessed and could do lots with it. But they could do that and not be hurt because they've got 100 million in the bank. Then there's pensioners living week to week. And for them to give £20 is really pushing their budget to the wire. So, so to God, the pensioner giving that £20 is more faithful and more honourable than the guy who drops in a million. God doesn't measure the gift in portion, but proportion. This widow gave of her life, her livelihood. She put it all in, all that she had. I believe that whenever and whatever you give to God, look, that's between you and God. But I do believe it should cost. You ought to feel it. It should feel like you're giving something else up to make this happen. I, I've always believed that when you give to the Lord, it's got to be where I feel the pinch. Think of King David. Whenever he wanted to offer to the Lord, he offered to buy the threshing floor of Ornan, which, by the way, is where the temple is uh, was eventually placed. It's the same spot. He wanted to buy that because he wanted to build the temple for the Lord. The owner says, oh, your majesty, if you're going to do something for God, you can have it. It's free since it's for God. And David says, no, 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 no. I'm going to pay full price for it. No, no, David, David you're going to do a good deed for the Lord. I, I want to donate it to you. And David said, no, I'm not going to give to God something that costs me nothing. I've got to feel it. It's got to cost me. It's got to hurt a little bit. I want God to know I can go without other stuff, but I can't go without him. I want it to be reflected in my life that he's a priority. It, more than a holiday, more than a golf club membership, more than splurging on a shopping trip. I'll gladly go to one less restaurant each month and give more to God because he's the priority. Now, here's what's really interesting about Jesus. Did you know that of all the parables that Jesus taught, at least half of the literary real estate the words spoken by Jesus in the Gospels, half of the parables deal with money. He had a lot to say about money. It was an important topic to him. It's estimated in the New Testament that every one out of seven verses speaks about the relationship between a Christian and his finances. 500 verses that speak about prayer, less than that speak about faith, compared to 2,000 that talk about money. 
So just looking at this and hearing what I just said, we want to ask this question, how should I give to the Lord? Well, here's the answer, give simply, give proportionately, give joyfully. That's what the New Testament teaches. Give simply, give proportionately, give joyfully. Give simply, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches these words. You don't have to turn to it. It's in Matthew 6. He says, take heed that you do not do, in terms of your giving or, or charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed or when you give your alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory for men. Surely I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That, that's how simple it ought to be. That your charitable deed or the giving of alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You remember, do you not, whenever we were going through Second Corinthians chapter 9, talked about giving and says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. So whatever your purpose in your heart, that's, like as I told you, between yourself and God. But let him as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or necessity, God loves a cheerful giver. So give simply, without fanfare, not, okay, look, whenever you see how much I write this check out for, I want a plaque on the on the door I, I want i want a wee note on, on that i donated this pure this wing to this church no none of that you give simply you give proportionately and you give joyfully that's how the new testament would sum it up i've always hated hype i've always hated when people on television and church services say you know when they talk about a seed faith you know you plant the seed of faith have you planted enough i uh, plant a big seed which basically means give us some money Give us some money and trust then that it'll all work out. You plant that seed of faith. Now, I believe in certain parts in these principles. I do believe in reaping and sowing. I do believe that the Bible says to test when it, the Lord when it comes to giving. But I do believe that God hates hype as well. So God says, look, just do it simply. Try to do it anonymously if you can do it proportionally. And for some people, look, 20 pounds is going to be hard to give. For others, it's no big deal. For others, 200,000 isn't going to be a big deal. So give proportionately to what uh, you make and do it joyfully. She, this widow, the Lord says, give more than all. You know, I was struck again by what Jesus says about this widow. But as we come into the Easter week, I want you to be struck about when he said it as well. He says this 48 hours before he is taken and crucified. Why worry about giving at this point? I think Jesus wanted his followers to be thinking in terms of proportion. Because in a matter of days they will see Christ, the Son of God, willingly give themselves for their sin. They will see him taken, beaten, tried in a kangaroo court, beaten again, nailed to a cross, suffering unspeakable pain. All as he becomes the lamb slain for us. When we talk about the Lamb of God. It's not enough to talk about the portion of his sacrifice. As precious as it is to consider the height, the length, the breadth, the depth of his love, to measure the number of lashings, the, the length of thorns used in the crown on his head, the spear that pierced his side while people laughed. There, there's merit in that, but I think you first, first of all, must appreciate 
the proportion that he gave. The Son of God gave himself totally, freely and willingly. If you ever want to consider this Easter how much you're loved by God, if you ever need to reconsider how much he cares about you, then the answer isn't just in the portion, but the put portion. For like this widow, he gave what would cost him. He gave by us. He gave his own life for you. Now, Jesus now goes on to the Olivet Discourse. That's what the rest of the chapter is called. But we've got less detail here in Luke than the likes of Matthew. Matthew will give him two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. Mark will give chapter 13 over to us. Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles. This discourse is a sermon for Jews preached by a Jew. So Luke omits some things and just only keeps the essential truths that we need to consider and apply. There's parallels to Revelation 6, but the difference between now and the end times isn't what will start, but what will intensify. In, in these verses, Jesus mentions false teachers, wars, famines, death, persecution, martyrdom, chaos on a global scale. Look, there's always been these things across the world. There, there will be a time, though, when they will obviously and dramatically intensify. These things happening in themselves are not signs of the end, but let me just highlight the lessons that I think looks really trying to get across to us in this. Number one, it's in verse eight. He replied, don't let anyone mislead you. Underline that. Don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and saying the time has come, but don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Now again, note that underline that too it's not going to come immediately they thought the disciples thought the kingdom of god was coming immediately jesus says look no there's a period of time before the kingdom will be set up and the end of the age that's why we need to be careful as believers we can look so silly sometimes when everything that happens oh it's a sign it's the end of days be careful about that kind of thing what we assign to end time prophecies i believe in prophecy i believe in fulfillment but we need to be careful because sometimes it gets overdone and it gets overcooked. The focus here isn't on the stuff that might be going on. The point is, do not be misled. To not be deceived, to not fall victim to the panic or even the lies of others. I've heard so many sermons on these verses. And ultimately it comes down to trying to scare Christians. No, the point is, do not be scared. Satan's currency is to deceive and to scare. Jesus wants us to be bold and to stand on truth. Verse 9 that I, I read said, don't panic. Yes, these things will happen. They, they can't be stopped. They have to happen. There will be wars, rumours of wars, false teachers. But, but listen to those verses carefully. Verse 12. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You'll be dragged into synagogues and prisons. You'll stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. Okay, now here's the bit where you need to pay attention. Verse 13. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Yes, as we approach the end times, it will be tough times, especially for those of us who are clinging to the name of Jesus. 
But those times will also be days of opportunity to witness. And he'll give us the words to say in those moments. Tough days ahead. But you'll not go through those days alone. God says, I will be with you. I'll be in your hearts. My words will be in your mouth. That's so encouraging. I think Luke would rather we take away that emphasis than the list of stuff that we may have to face up to. Don't be tricked. Don't be afraid. But look at this as well. Don't worry. Why? Because one truth remains. God is in control. Look at verse 17. And everyone will hate you because you're my followers, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will save your souls. There's a twist to this suffering thing. None of us like to suffer. None of us want to sign up for that. And yet all of us want to have patience. All right, I've noticed this, all right? None of us like to suffer, but we all want to be more patient. Every Christian I've ever met, oh, just, Jeff, pray for patience. Where it will be careful what you're praying for. Because here's the twist. Our ability to suffer actually produced, produced by suffering, right? I mean, that's where our ability comes from. So we need to learn from patience that comes through that. For tribulation will work patience and patience produces character. Character produces hope and hope makes us not ashamed. That's what the Bible tells us in Romans. I've always loved the, the story about an older minister and a young minister comes up to him at a pastor's conference and says, look, you know, you've always seen you as a mentor, uh, but my biggest issue as a young pastor is I'm very impatient. Would you pray with me for, for patience? And he says, look, I'll be honoured to. And so this elderly pastor puts his hands on him and says, Father, send this man trials and hardships and sufferings. And the man backs up and says, no, no, get your hands off me. What are you doing? I didn't ask for that. I wanted patience. Exactly, said the elderly pastor. Tribulation worketh patience. James, later on, will say, let patience have its perfect work. Your ability to endure suffering is produced by that suffering itself. That's why you'll find people who have lived a while and have endured trials. They're the people you want to talk to. They're the people you want counsel from. They'll give you wisdom of years of experience. Now, drop down to verse 28. When all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. So now what happens is the Lord builds on these points and then gives them two very clear commands. And guess what? It's not be afraid. It's not speculate wildly about what might happen and when it might happen. He says, no, and watch. And he does this by telling a parable. Verse 29. Then he gives them this illustration Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Now, the fig tree is often used as a picture of Israel. That comes from Hosea chapter 9. But I think we need to notice that Jesus isn't just talking about Israel here. He's talking about the fig tree or any other tree. So it's not just the nation of Israel, but all nations, various nations. And I'll be honest, there's so many people who've got so many different ideas about what these verses should mean. Some have some merit, some have less merit. Like it could simply be something as fundamental as just saying, look, you can look at a tree and you know by looking at it what season it is. 
right? You, you might not be able to say specifically what week or what month it is, but you can look at a tree and say, well, it's springtime or it's autumn time or it's winter time or, or whatever. So you may not be able to be accurate by looking at it. You may not know exactly what God's plan is, but you should be able to look around and figure out the general season that, that we are in. And you can make it more complicated, I suppose, if you want. You can take the fig tree and you can, at home, just if you're in quarantine, you can just make charts and write a book and all if you want to. But I tend to think it's it's more straightforward than a lot of people make it. But what about this generation thing that he mentions? He says, this generation will not pass. Now, this does cause problems for some people. Is he talking about the disciples specifically? Guys, you'll see Jerusalem fall in AD 70. With the Romans, you'll see God come in from uh, in the form of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Okay, maybe that, that ticks some boxes, but none of the other things happened, especially the main thing, which was the king establishing a kingdom. Well, this word generation could also be translated as race, and it has been done in, in other verses in the Bible. So it's likely Jesus could be saying, look, the Jewish nation will have issues, big issues. And I think it's fair to say that throughout history, they have been on the receiving end of a lot of suffering, but that this race of people, this nation of Israel will endure for God is not finished with her yet. Satan will want to destroy her, but he will not succeed. Israel is surrounded by enemies who don't even recognize her right to exist, but they will fail. Verse 34 then says, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Okay, well, look, carousing and drunkenness may not be your thing, but what about the worries of this life right now? Don't let your hearts be dulled by this. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. So stay alert. Know what to look for. Watch for the general signs of the season and then watch for them. Don't be afraid, but pray. Now, some interpreters will tell me who hold a certain position that Christians are going to go through the tribulation and they say, Jeff, you're just an optimistic escape artist. And they might say, you know, I don't know why you think you're going to get away with escaping the tribulation. Well, it's because in these verses, Jesus told me to pray that way. And so I'm going to do as he says, and I believe he wouldn't say, pray that you escape it if he thought that was impossible. He's not going to say that if you think, well, you're definitely going to go through. But I also think in more general terms, in difficult times like the ones that we're in right now, it's easy to start panicking and start living like unsafe people. And I've said before, even in these videos, I feel it stirring up in me when I go to the shops, you see bare shelves, or you see people running for certain things. And instinctively you think, oh, I have to get in there. I have to get get in there and be part of that as well in case I miss out. And, you know, in, in times like these, pray that we can also escape the sinful temptations of the day. We need to be alert. The Bible says, Jesus says, watch. So you need to get involved with other believers. You need to get active with unbelievers, winning them to Christ. This life, we're not just toying around, we're not playing games. Just as Jesus said, all these stones are coming down. Everything you see around us is going to come down. The new car you got, it's going to come down. The house you just bought, it's going to come down. The church building that we have, it'll come down. It'll all come down because it's not meant to last. None of it is going to last. And it's a good lesson because we've got something greater to look to. The kingdom of God is coming. 
So let's get active with believers and train them and disciple them and pour our hearts into them. Let's get busy with unbelievers and win them to Christ. And finally, if you're an unbeliever, get right with God. Get right with God tonight. And do that right now. Because you don't know what the future holds. And it's no mistake to me that in the hours leading up to his trial, his arrest, Jesus is taking the time to lay these things out. That, that we have to think about the proportion of what he did for us, the amount that he gave for us. Like that widow, she gave everything. He gave us all of himself. There's a reason for that. He doesn't do it just because of it's an empty gesture, but he does it because you need to respond to the work of the cross. You need to respond to this invitation to come and rest under the shadow of his wings. And I pray that you'll do that even in these moments now. Folks, stay safe. Remember to stay indoors. Don't take any silly risks. Uh, stay in as much as you can. And uh, I really miss you all. I, I love you all. And uh, please don't be scared to reach out. If you want to talk to myself or to some of the elders, we are all here for you. But please don't be scared to reach out to us. All right, I'll see you soon. Goodbye.